Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we take you back into history and tell you about some sort of strange or unusual event or person that has occurred or lived. <laughs> yep, we. this is like our 43rd episode including all the bonus stuff mm -hmm. and still don't really have that beginning down right i've got a beginning i, know I do the do. same one every time yeah fair enough I, I i want to try and mix it up but, but that's fair you can you can if you want to yeah. just don't say that people have occurred <laughs> i am your host for this week barnaby king and joining me as ever is my co-host amelia edwards hello hello so this month, as you mentioned last week, mm -hmm. is Women's History Month. Yes, it is. And we've recently had International Women's Day. Yes, we did. And this uh, was really helpful for this podcast <laughs> because there were so many people posting on social media about interesting women who have done really cool things. Excellent. So special shout out this week to the organisation Hope Not Hate, who basically fight against fascism oh wonderful uh, <laughs> i love people who fight against fascism yes and they posted uh sort of brief biographies of a number of women mm -hmm. who have done significant things and one of them really stood out to me just because the way it was written was amazing okay and it was about a woman by the name of beata klasfeld okay and in this uh tweet it was mentioned that she and her husband uh, were part of a family business. Okay. Thought, oh, that's nice. That's cute. Yeah. Their family business is hunting Nazis. With a crossbow? <laughs> not quite, not quite. Although, you know, you could get a damn good film. In fact, no, wait, there is a TV show where I think they do literally hunt Nazis. Yeah, I think it's called Nazi Hunters. Something like that. It's one of those ones that, you know, it's been on the back burner to watch for a while. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just called Hunters, actually. It could be. Yeah. No, and anyway, I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it bears any relation to this. But I looked into the story of Beata and her husband, Serge, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Okay. And the, it just includes so much stuff that I was like, yep, that's an episode right there. How do you make a business out of hunting Nazis? Well... I, I guess you can think of it more... Well, it is kind of a business. I mean, but... are they like... Um, oh, what's the word for it? The people who... Bounty hunters. Are they bounty hunters, but Not with Nazis? Quite. Think of them more as like private investigators. Okay. We'll get onto the exact details of their Nazi hunting later on. So I'm going to take you back to Beata's birth in 1939 in Berlin contentious time to be born in berlin indeed it was so beata was born beata kunzel and she was born into a family that had actually voted for the nazi party okay but didn't seem to really sort of embrace the ideology of it which i think is quite common probably at the time probably i mean did you know that 99 percent of austrians voted to be annexed by germany really yes what are you being serious? No, or? I'm being serious. That was the number that was reported. Good lord! Um, they said they'd invaded Austria. Hmm. Um, people went to the polls to vote on whether they were happy with having Germany in charge of them, and 99% of people said yes, absolutely. Were they being gently encouraged to vote yes? Almost definitely. <laughs> no one. 99% of people never vote for no, anything. No. But a lot of people did vote for the Nazi party mm -hmm. and obviously prior to World War II, before the extent of their 
sort of the evils of their ideology were really mm. like public. People may have voted for financial reasons. Obviously, Germany was in a bit of a state yeah. uh, post-World War One. They might have seen it as the lesser of two evils as well yeah. because they saw communism as a much bigger threat mm. than fascism because fascism hadn't got the same... Uh, sort of, we didn't have the same knowledge about fascism yeah. at the time, but they knew that communism could well happen. Yeah. So Beata herself insists that her parents were not like active Nazis. Okay. But again, you would. I mean, yes. Yeah. It, it, it leaves it open to some interpretation. Later on, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure like her mother... Even if she was at the time, definitely abandoned that ideology later on. Okay, all right then. So her father was drafted into the German army, mm -hmm. uh, but he left before completing a year because he contracted a case of double pneumonia. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's pneumonia that affects both lungs. Yeah. So he went back to Germany and basically worked as an accountant for most of the rest of the war. Wow. I forget that people have to be accountants during war. I know. You kind of feel like everyone is either just hunched civilian hiding from the bombs yeah. or they're a soldier yeah. but you know life does go on <laughs> even in Nazi Germany <laughs> apparently so yeah so Beata as a teenager after the war obviously mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, she seemed to fall out with her parents somewhat because they were basically concerned that you know the war is over, Germany is still in a bit of a state yeah. and they were kind of worried about you know keeping house and home where she was a bit more worried about sort of broader political things going on. Okay. I could understand her parents maybe not wanting to get political about anything, given how political everything has just been as well. Well, yeah. And Beata actually said that at this point, she didn't actually know about the Holocaust. Yeah, um, that's what a lot of Germans have said. And I think that they're telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So Beata, at the age of 21... Politically unaware, she describes herself as. Okay. She moves from West Germany, as it was at the time, yeah. to Paris. Okay. In order to work as an au pair. All right, lovely. And it was on the 11th of May, 1960, that she met a man by the name of Serge Klaasfeld. Mm-hmm. And this date is actually important and kind of, like, in a way symbolises how their relationship is going to go. Okay. Because this is the same day that Adolf Eichmann, one of the major organisers of The Final Solution, was kidnapped by Mossad Israeli officials. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> it kind of sets the tone for the kind of work that Beata and Serge continue. See, okay, I love this because in my mind, Paris in 1960 is like the beginning of all the chic French culture. Mm. And meanwhile, we're like, oh no, Nazis though. Yeah. We're, we're going kid to go kidnap some Nazis. Why yeah, not? <laughs> because at this point, the war was over, but there were a lot of Nazis about Sure. Because while there had been various trials, mm -hmm. not all of them had resulted in people being imprisoned and some people had been basically given clemency in exchange for various favours. I mean, famously, we know of Operation Paperclip where Nazi scientists were given amnesty in the US. Oh, yeah. In order to... Otherwise, how are you going to get to the moon, Westerners? Exactly. Um and then there are all there are even worse examples of this. Um, something that I'll mention briefly, but I really don't want to cover on the podcast is Fair Unit enough. 731 in Japan. Okay. Which, if you are in the mood to never sleep again, you can go read about yourselves. It had some of the most heinous atrocities of the war. And many of the 
quote-unquote scientists who engaged in human experimentation were basically let off scot-free because they gave over their research notes to other powers great and this is where we get into the whole like um cia yes. uh, conspiracy theories because who knows what the cia knows because of hideous experiments <laughs> find out on that time when no, no we are not covering unit 731 okay <laughs> okay so beata was not jewish um, but Serge had been born into a Romanian Jewish family and they had moved to France and become French citizens just before the Second World War. Okay. Ooh, tricky times. Yeah, tricky times and tricky combination to be mm. not only Jewish but also Romanian. Yep, that's gonna like tick off some boxes for the German for the Nazi Germans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Nazi occupied France, Serge's family home was raided. Yeah. And Serge, his mother, and his sister were hidden by their father, who had constructed a sort of secret room which could be accessed by a panel at the back of a wardrobe. Okay. Now, there was enough space for them, but the Mm -hmm. father was basically like, the Nazis are coming, they're going to arrest somebody. If they don't find anyone, they're going to tear this place apart. So he actually gave himself over to the Nazis and was taken to Auschwitz, where he later died. Okay, that is an incredible act of heroism. I know, right? It's but pretty how incredible. horrible. Yeah. So the rest of the family, though, they survived. And Serge and his sister went into homes for Jewish children. And okay. his mother managed to escape. And they later met up again. It's mm. all rather lovely. But of course, this means that, you know, Serge is very aware of the atrocities committed by Nazis. Yeah. And it's through Serge that Beata actually learns about the Holocaust and the extent of these atrocities. Okay, that's got to be so awkward, being like, oh, hi, I've just met you and I might have a bit of a crush on you and we're in Paris (laughs) and it's the city of love in 1960s. Um, And now you're telling me all these horrible things that people relatively close to me may have done and I had no idea. Well, it seems like she was actually really grateful to him for like revealing this to Mm. her and it lit a real political fire in her for someone who as i say described herself as politically unaware now she was very political excellent because she was basically like this is awful this should never have happened and i can't believe that there are still people around who were part of this Mm -hmm. and are walking free she said that basically you have to acknowledge the history of your own country yeah and she she has this this wonderful uh, way of describing it about guilt and responsibility, which I'll go on to later. So she's learned about the atrocities of Nazi Germany, and she's also learned about how many high-ranking Nazis were free and living with impunity, still okay. able to affect the world. She said that Nazis had become good Germans, good fathers, and good husbands, and she was not happy about this at all. Excellent. In 1963, uh, she and Serge married, and they had two children. Uh, Their children later also were very heavy political figures. Still are, actually. They're still Mm. alive. In fact, Serge and Beata are still alive. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, this isn't history, then. Let's wrap it up. No, no. It's World War II, so it counts. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Even if it is post-war, but still it counts. It counts. Anyway, so during this time, Beata becoming more politically motivated and interested in feminism and the emancipation of women in Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was actually quite an interesting time for feminism in Germany. There were some extreme actions, including basically terrorism. Okay. uh, Which I'm not going to get into here. 
because their main goal, this was just a sort of side hustle for her, her main goal was hunting down Nazis. Wonderful. In 1966, a man by the name of Kurt Georg Kissinger had been elected as Chancellor of Germany. Okay. And this was because there had been a bit of political upheaval and he had headed a coalition. And he was quite popular at the time, mainly because he was a skilled orator. He was actually nicknamed King Silvertongue. Okay, the Germans are so cool when it comes to language. Yeah, right. Imagine if we said that about Boris Johnson, not that he is, but you know what I mean? <laughs> He's the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> what would we call him? Wooden tongue. I, I was literally thinking wooden tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Grimmer wooden tongue. No, <laughs> this is not Lord of the Rings. Anyway, there was, however, a problem. Kissinger... Mm-hmm. had been an active member of the Nazi party. Oh, great. He had been one of the propaganda generals and had probably worked quite closely with Goebbels. Okay, so he's a great orator. Yep. Who was part of the Nazi propaganda machine. Yep. You don't really want that combination going on because no. wasn't Hitler also a great orator? Oh, yeah. So but it was this kind of thing that people were either ignorant of the fact or were willfully ignorant of the fact. I guess, okay, it probably does get to a bit of a point where you kind of go, okay, so this man was a Nazi, but so were lots of other people. Like, maybe you start to try and excuse things along those lines. I think there is that. I think there is also a sense of wanting to move past this Mm. era. Like, you've had the war trials. They're kind of like, we're done with that stage of history. We're moving on now. I guess. I guess I'm sort of thinking about it a little bit from the perspective of um, times when I've been in Berlin. Um, and they talk, there's a lot on the tour of Berlin, which I thoroughly recommend. Go on one. It's wonderful. It's we wonderful. had a great tour guide when we went on it mm-hmm. who uh, <laughs> described his favourite statue. Oh, yes. <laughs> Naked man, man punching, punching a, a horse. horse. <laughs> um, so one of the things that gets mentioned is kind of the difficulty of avoiding companies and brands that were Mm. associated with the Nazis. So, for example, Hugo Boss um, Mm. created the Nazi uniform. Yeah. And one of these particularly is a massive source of contention, which is the Holocaust memorial for the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Mm. Now, there's loads of issues around that as it is, which is such a shame because it's such a beautiful memorial. Yeah. but one of the main issues is that the government in Berlin are very aware that people are going to want to spray swastikas on things because, you know, people are arseholes. Mm. Um, so they put this chemical all over the Holocaust memorial for the Jewish victims of the Holocaust um, that would stop it picking up graffiti. Mm. But the problem is that now a lot of high, like, um, I wanted to say high-ranking Jewish people, but I mean, like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, people who are big in the Jewish community um, now refuse to kind of acknowledge it, like, the memorial at all, because the people that they bought this chemical from also made Zyklone B, Mm. uh, which was the chemical that they used to put into the gas chambers. Yeah. But ultimately, the reason why the government bought this chemical from these people is because it's so hard to find things in Germany that weren't at some point associated with the Nazis. Well, Serge and Beata, and I'll get onto some more direct quotes from them later. As I said, they have this very strong moral compass regarding guilt and responsibility. Okay. But they saw Kissinger 
as very much responsible. He was part of this party. He was an anti-Semite mm-hmm. and basically continued being so after the war. Okay, and so they, he's not he's not sort of redeemed himself in any no, way. No, not at all. Not Great. at all. So Beata, who was working as a journalist at the time, wrote an article about Kissinger and she described him as exemplifying the respectability of evil. Oh, wow. Which is great. And as a result of this article, she was fired. Oh, no. Because he was the chancellor. Yep. And, you know, she was slandering him in inverted commas. Yeah. But this did nothing to dissuade her from basically waging war against him. Excellent. So at first, she kept this to a sort of journalistic style. Uh, She published pamphlets uh, with titles such as The History of Party Member 2633930 Kissinger. (laughs) Okay, that's cool. Yeah, right? She continued to dig into his past and reveal his heavy involvement with the propaganda machine of the Nazi party and that he was still an Mm anti-Semite. But despite this, there was little interest in her work, basically. Okay. And I think this was partly because she was based in France and the relationship between France and Germany at this time was kind of chilly. Yeah. Politically. Um, In a way, her actions, which we'll talk about in a bit, kind of may have been responsible for the softening of this. Okay. Which is well, wonderful. Well, that's good. But anyway, she decides, basically, she's not getting anywhere with this. She needs to take more direct action. So, on the 2nd of April, 1968, during a parliamentary session in the Bundestag, mm-hmm. which is the German parliament building, yep. Beata arrives, stood up in the public gallery, and shouted, Kissinger, Nazi, resign! <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. She was arrested. Good. And <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean good. How I dare just you? Went, I just went like, that's so, that's so like... Yeah. Yeah. You meant it as sort of tongue in cheek. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't mean good, this woman calling out Nazis. How dare she? I mean, like, <laughs> given everything that's currently going on, yeah. isn't that just so... Isn't oh, yeah. that just so, it's so typical? typical. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So she was arrested, but she was released without charge, basically given a warning, hey, don't come back and call the Chancellor a Nazi. (laughs) But she was like, nah, nah, you know what, I'm going to come back. (laughs) On the 9th of May, she was part of a panel that spoke before uh, two to 3,000 students in the Technical University of Berlin. Mm -hmm. And she said that she believed Kissinger was a major threat to modern Germany, and she promised to slap him publicly. Oh, wow. Yeah. The audience laughed, thought it was hilarious, but she was deadly serious about this. Of course she was. And this was the beginning of a plan to slap the Chancellor of Germany. (laughs) Wonderful. So... During this time, Kissinger was trying to basically cover his tracks. Mm. And he kind of like spoke more about his involvement in the Nazi party, but was very clear that he didn't know anything about the murder of Jews until 1942, or had not heard anything about it, and didn't believe it until 1944, because at that point the strength of testimonies was too much and he had to believe it was true. Okay, uh, I'm kind of making a face here. Yeah. (laughs) Just... Mm. You're just making a sort of, yeah, right. Yeah, like... Okay, have you seen textbooks they used to give to students at the time? No, I haven't. Like, so for pupils, like, 
obviously not everyone knew that the Holocaust was going on, mm. but the level of anti-Semitism was just so very obvious. Oh, yeah. There are maths textbooks um, that were in Nazi Germany being taught to sort of seven year sevens, year eights, that kind of age group that were doing puzzles based on if... Um, if this many Jewish people have this much gold, etc., or even um, if we send three aeroplanes with this many bombs to the UK, how many will they have to discharge? Jesus. It's, it's all very, like, on the nose. <laughs> I, it always comes back to that Mitchell and Webb look sketch, which is in, like, the first episode of their TV series. <laughs> what, are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? <laughs> it's like when you've got textbooks going, if we send this many planes, how many bombs can I... <laughs> That's... I mean, granted, we did that kind of stuff too. I mean, yeah, too. Like, yeah, okay. Did you did you know in World War One there was this whole thing about not giving kids um, toy soldiers that had been manufactured in Germany because obviously German manufactured toys would have poison in them if the children put them right. in their mouths. <laughs> Okay, of course, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's on both sides. Well, but there's yeah. definitely an anti-Semitic yeah. thing going on with maths problems. Yeah. Which I mean, you'd think could be completely free of anti-Semitism, but yeah. no. If you're trying to deny that you knew of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany, you've got to kind of go, hang on, you're talking yeah, no. bollocks. And also, <laughs> just the idea that you'd be someone so high up in mm. German government and you'd be a wet like he's mates with Goebbels he's, like <laughs> he's friends with Goebbels and he hasn't noticed that there are all of these Jewish people being put into ghettos say mm. or that they somehow seem to have fewer of them than they used to, like or government sanctioned pogroms is he just saying that he was just so ignorant of everything that was going on in the country like there's no way yeah. you wouldn't have noticed that it's one of those things that sometimes people are like, oh, I'm not aware of this. And it's like, well, either you're lying yeah. or you're just a bit of a tit. It's like, I can believe <laughs> that the average German citizen wouldn't oh, yeah. be aware of this stuff because it's kind of outside of their zone of what they can see. You yeah. know that Jewish people had been moved out of Berlin, but that would be about it if yeah. you were living in Berlin. And the propaganda machine is there to sort of keep you ignorant as well. Yeah. But if you're part of the propaganda machine, then yeah. how do you not know? Exactly. So... Obviously, Beata was having none of this. No. On the 7th of November, 1968, she made her way onto the podium where Kissinger was giving an address and she slapped him while shouting, Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. Yes. <laughs> I like this lady. Did she get arrested? She did. Oh my God. Color me surprised. Yeah. So she described the slap as being a symbolic gesture as much as a physical one. Mm -hmm. She says, It came from a younger generation to an older one. I did it as a German non-Jew born in 1939 who wasn't guilty but felt responsible. Mm. And it was also the fact that it was her and not, say, Serge delivering the slap that was also calculated. Because the idea was that if a man were to slap or strike the Chancellor, then it would be seen as like, oh, this is just an aggressive act. Yeah. And symbolically, Serge explains it as evoking the image of the daughter of a high-ranking Nazi slapping her father. Yeah. So it was more like shaming than it was aggressive. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense because mm. it's it would have separated it into more of an us versus them mentality if yeah. Serge had done it because it would be, you know, I want to stand up for what's happened to my people. Yeah. Whereas when she does it, it's I want my people to be better. Exactly. 
Yeah, and there were there like there were also there was some precedent at the time. I, I believe it was uh, an incident in America where someone had punched a Nazi, a literal Nazi. Nice. And newspaper articles were run being like, "Is it all right to punch a Nazi?" And in fact, I think Isn't we had one. Isn't that a question that we've got nowadays? Yeah, it is. It, we had something very similar. Yeah. It's the eternal question. Can we at least throw milkshakes at Nazis? <laughs> I miss those days. I miss those days too. <laughs> but I think that's going to be my favorite thing about lockdown lifting is going to be being able to throw milkshakes at people that we think are fascists again. Okay, so Beata, as we said, was arrested. Mm-hmm. She was charged with slander and battery. And she had a number of powerful detractors, including the aide of Kissinger, Mm -hmm. who himself had been a Nazi propagandist. Oh, no, really? Yeah. And he described her actions as the result of a sexually frustrated woman. Well, it was the 60s, so... (laughs) No. No. (laughs) (laughs) They've just invented the pill. (laughs) But also, isn't that just so typical? As, like, woman does big grand gesture, man immediately goes... Well, it's clearly like her hormones acting. Yeah. I love the use of sexually prostrated though. It's yeah. so Shakespearean. Yeah. Um have you heard of green sickness? No, I haven't. So Shakespeare uses this a lot in his plays. Yeah. Um so you might know it from when Romeo is doing his um speech outside Juliet's balcony mm. and he says Come um, down, I want to bang. <laughs> He says that the moon's livery is sick and green. Right. And the reason is because um, green sickness is referring to the idea that if you are a virgin woman, then you might actually get kind of ill and mopey. (laughs) Um, And the only way to solve that is to get married and have sex. Hey, babe, you don't want to get that green sickness, do you? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. So Beata was actually like, she was in some danger during this as well. One of the bodyguards nearly shot her oh my god uh he had his gun aimed at her but Mm -hmm. she was basically too close to kissinger and he was like in that moment he was like i might shoot the chancellor yeah and so hesitated and that basically saved her life i'm just thinking there must have been such a dramatic time in germany as well because you've got the wall going up properly Mm. at this point as in like it was a barrier before but now it's a physical barrier physical wall and if they're in Berlin as well, that's like the very edge of yeah. things. Oh my God. Yeah. There's a lot of the politics between East and West Germany, which I'm not going into here. Fair enough. There's a it, lot going on. Yeah. There is a lot going on here. So Beata was tried and she was sentenced to one year imprisonment. Okay. Which was the maximum charge that could be levied at her. And the judge said that he was giving the maximum sentence because of the high status figure that she had targeted. Okay. However, because she was also a French citizen, Mm. she was instead given a four-month suspended sentence because they didn't want it to cause any sort of diplomatic incident. Oh, nice. Now, Beata didn't seem to really care much about this because Mm. she and Serge used her trial rather than as as an opportunity to sort of like protest her innocence or anything like that. They just used it to further publicize Kissinger's history. Yeah. And soon he could not be seen in public without people chanting Nazi, Nazi, (laughs) Nazi at him. Amazing. Some people made up like fake uh, Nazi identification booklets to throw at him. Okay. And it's believed that it's her actions that directly caused him to lose the election in 1969 to Willy Brandt. Okay, I've heard of Brandt. Yes, he was a very famous figure. Mm. He was an anti-Nazi German who had escaped to Scandinavia during the war. Mm. 
and he went on to make some diplomatic changes which softened Franco-German relations, which is why I say... Uh, yeah. They, that, she may have influenced that. Yeah. yeah, because this was particularly the case when it came to putting war criminals of Nazi Germany on trial. Okay. Because France had basically been like, hey, we want you to do more in the name of justice. Mm -hmm. And Germany was kind of like, mm, we're kind of done with that. Yeah. We, we want to do other things now. Okay, so Willy Brandt must have been one of those people who has massively impacted Germany then, because mm. when we went to Berlin, we, like, everywhere around you is, like, reminders of Germany's past and yeah. the fact that we should not repeat this again. Yeah. Um, like, that seems to be very much sort of in the mindset constantly, at least in Berlin. Yeah. So Beata, like... <laughs> She's so cool. She's kind of humble about this whole thing. She does kind of go like, yeah, it, it does seem like, you know, we helped get him elected. But she's also like, he doesn't go far enough in hunting Nazis okay. for my tastes. All right. <laughs> um, oh, yes. One other thing I wanted to mention before I move on to her hunting Nazis phase. Yeah. The Nobel Prize laureate Heinrich Bull sent her a bunch of red roses in honour of her actions after she slapped the Chancellor. That's amazing. Which is great because uh, Bull had been uh, kind of set up against another author who I believe his name was Grass. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of, they both in a way wanted to symbolise modern Germany. Mm -hmm. Grass was a massive sexist. Though. Is that Gunter Grass? Yes. I've seen one of his books at my mum's house and now I'm worried. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, it seemed Bull was much better okay. and much better at gestures because that's grand. I mean, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, right? So, as I've said, Beata had this really interesting life and it's not possible to put everything into this episode. Mm. She and her husband have written an autobiography and I'm quite tempted to read it and maybe come back with a sort of bonus episode where I either do it as a sort of book review or just like bonus stories from their life. I think do it. Like, yeah. um, I've already done two episodes on Richard the Lionheart and I'm mm, planning to true. do another one soon. So yeah, fair enough. If you're going to break up, like if you've got loads of information on someone, you might as well. Yeah. So for this episode, I'm going to continue and I'm going to talk about two specific incidents. Okay. And then maybe come back at a later date for some more because, you know, juicy stuff. Mm -hmm. In 1971, Beata, along with a group of others, attempted to kidnap a man in Cologne. But they failed, basically. The man got away. Okay. This was not to say, though, that this was unsuccessful because it drew media attention to the victim of the attempted kidnapping, a man who was living openly under his name, Kurt Lischke. Okay. Lischke had been responsible for the deportation of approximately 76,000 Jews. Ooh. And he had been head of the Gestapo in Cologne. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> he had been also responsible for the operation that saw the arrest of over 30,000 German Jews after Kristallnacht. Okay. Which, I mean, for those who don't know, mm -hmm. was basically an event where lots of Jews had their premises destroyed yeah. in pogroms and it's known as Kristallnacht because of the broken glass. Yeah, it was kind of like the big move just before everyone got shoved into ghettos. Yeah. But the problem was, and the reason that she was trying to kidnap him, mm -hmm. was because of some legal technicalities, Lischke could not be tried in Germany. Okay. He'd been tried already in Paris in 1945 and sentenced to life imprisonment in absentia. 
Okay. So he wasn't actually there for his trial. So Right. But if they got him back to France, then he could be put in prison? Uh, I think it's if they got him to Germany. It's a bit confusing. I okay. don't know the full nature of the legal technicalities because Fair enough. a lot of the reasons why these high-ranking Nazis were walking free were because of either arrangements with foreign governments or legal technicalities, which are just complicated. Okay. So I don't know the exact situation, but basically, even though he had technically been tried for these crimes already, mm-hmm. he was walking free in Cologne. Right. And he's just chilling out there being like, hi guys, I used to be the head of the Gestapo. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh my God. So Beata was arrested for her attempted kidnapping. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and she said to German authorities that basically they had to arrest her or arrest Lishka. Okay. And they were like, let's arrest you. Yeah, she was arrested and sentenced to two months imprisonment in 1974. Okay. So it's three years afterwards. Okay, I'm just so taken by like how how short her sentences seem to be. Just like, I love that you can slap the Chancellor of Germany in the face and get a year. Like... As the maximum as well. As the maximum. Just, it seems worth it. (laughs) Why isn't everyone lining up to slap the Chancellor of Germany? I mean, Angela Merkel's a babe, so I wouldn't want to. But... But, you know, like, wonderful. I wonder if it's a bit of sort of benevolent paternal sexism going on here, which may Uh, also be a reason why Beata was a good candidate. Yeah, that might make sense. Yeah. But also, trying to kidnap someone, two months, two months. (laughs) Two months, yeah. That's a slap on the rest, And this was actually changed to a suspended sentence because there was international outcry because, you know, (laughs) the victim was... Kurt Lischka. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it does help your defense if you're like, well, I was trying to kidnap him, but he is a Nazi. (laughs) He is a Nazi who did really awful things and has basically got no justice for it. Yeah. Um, So he actually did remain free for another six years before he was finally arrested in 1980 and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. That is wild, though. You don't think of Nazis as still being alive in the 80s. I know, like, right? I, I know, obviously, they were, but it's one of those things where history kind of gets segmented in my yeah. head, and I'm like, oh, the Nazis. Like, they were all gone by 1950, mm. right? But no, he was still around, and uh, he actually... The reason his impris- like his term was so short, and he was actually released early, mm. was on health grounds, and he died in a nursing home before his 10 years were, were up. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this wasn't her highest profile case. Her highest profile case involved her travelling to Bolivia. Okay. She, she <laughs> went yeah, she went in the company with the French journalist Count Ladisla de Hoyo. Okay. Um French. Yes. I'm assuming he's got some kind of Hungarian <laughs> Quite ancestry? possibly. I, I didn't read much about him, but I just love that. Like, I saw the name and I was like, that's an interesting name. Mm-hmm. And I, I clicked on the link and it went to Count Ladisla de Hoyo. <laughs> Wonderful, sure. Uh, and also a cameraman called Christian van Riswick. I love all these people. Yeah, they're great. I so, wish we had more Germanic names. <laughs> <laughs> so the three of them went to Bolivia because they had arranged to interview a man by the name of Klaus Altman. Okay. Which is great because that just means old man. Excellent. <laughs> and, and was Klaus an old man? Uh, he was an old man. Mm-hmm. And this interview was conducted in Spanish and it went along some pre-arranged questions that had been all vetted beforehand. Okay. But during the interview, Ladislas suddenly asks him in French if he had ever been to Lyon. Okay. And Altman 
who apparently did not speak French, immediately answered in German that he know he had never been there. Oh my God, it's like the Great Escape. It really is. So obviously, hmm, that's suspicious. Okay, so he clearly understands French. He clearly understands French and speaks German. Mm-hmm. So Ladislas then gave Altman photos of French resistance fighters and asked if Altman recognised any of them. Okay. Altman took the photos, looked over them, basically said, no, I, I don't recognise any of these people. Why are you giving me these photos? And Ladislaw was like, no, it's all right. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Just hand them back. Okay. Hands them back. And he doesn't realise that what he's just done is give Beata and her team a copy of his fingerprints. Oh, my God. Okay. So this interview was actually televised. So this was a oh. real interview. And people recognised Altman. Mm-hmm. And they kind of went, hang on, we know who this man is. Okay. And his identity was confirmed by his fingerprints. He was, in fact, Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon. Oh my God, Klaus Barbie. (laughs) Now, I first heard of Klaus Barbie, and I think you did too. Yes. Do you want to tell the story for those who have not seen the film Rat Race? Okay, so there's a film called Rat Race that was for some reason very popular when we were in our early teens. Yeah. It's got Smash Mouth at the end of it. Oh my God, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) And... It's a really good film, actually. It still stands up, I think. It's got a lot of famous people in it. Loads of famous people, but it it kind of never became that cult classic. Yeah. Um, for some for some reason, I don't know, but yeah. everyone I know has seen it. <laughs> um, there's a basically everyone is trying to get money as a prize. Like they're all running a race, yeah. and it's absolutely mad. It's a cross country, and people have to take whatever transport they get. Mm. One guy is. Jewish and traveling with his family and they are getting really really fed up he's got these two teenage kids in the back seat and they're like oh you know we really need a break we need to go to the toilet and then his daughter goes oh my god the Barbie museum and then they're like oh yeah dad you've got to pull over like it's the Barbie museum we're gonna stop they stop at this place and they go in and they find out that it's dedicated to Klaus Barbie <laughs> and there are just these terrifying neo-nazis there <laughs> explaining about how wonderful Klaus Barbie was to this Jewish family. Okay, fine. But ten minutes. Wow, the Barbie Museum. Klaus Barbie, sometimes known as the Butcher of Lyon. Let the Jew revisionists talk about their death camps and so-called crimes against humanity. This museum is lovingly dedicated to the Klaus Barbie that nobody knows. The husband, the devoted father, the wine connoisseur, and three-time ballroom dancing champion. So, yeah, Klaus Barbie was a very famous Nazi war criminal. Um, He had been head of the Gestapo in Lyon, and he was known for his brutal torture of prisoners, adults and children. Okay. An estimation is that Barbie was directly responsible for the deaths of 14,000 people. Jesus. And again, it's a bit like Unit 731. Some of the ways in which they were executed are way too horrible to talk about on here, and I wish I hadn't read them. Yeah. But yeah, you know, this person was an absolute monster. Mm-hmm. And... Beata had revealed that he was living free and happy in Bolivia. Mm. And this caused international outcry, as you might imagine. Yeah. But there were a number of problems. 
Firstly, there was no extradition treaty between Bolivia and France. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't immediately have him sent over to be tried for his crimes. But he was also had been given protections after the war by the US government. Okay. They, it, it was kind of like the same sort of principle that worked with Operation Paperclip. And but did he have any scientific skills? I or? don't know. I don't know the nature of it, but the US government did ad- later admit responsibility and basically said, yeah, it's because of us that Barbie evaded justice for 33 years. Oh, God. Come on, America. You're supposed mm. to be the good guys in World War II. Well, he had also been working for the Bolivian government, and that actually might be why the US sort of set him up as a kind of sort of proxy for them there. Okay. Um. So oh, the God. the government, the Bolivian government at the time didn't want to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. The US didn't want them to get rid of him. So there was not much that could be done. Right. However, then there was a revolution and a change of government. Oh my gosh. And the new government basically got him on a charge that he owed them $10,000. Oh my God. I love how many people have been got on like tax evasion or yeah. something. Yeah. So it's because of this basis that, you know, he was a criminal and therefore could be extradited. Okay. And he was sent to France and charged with 41 separate counts of crimes against humanity. Wow. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1987 and he died in jail of leukemia. Okay. Now, in an interview with uh, Euronews, an EU... Uh, journalistic group Mm -hmm. they spoke in 2015 to Serge and Beata and uh, the interviewer asks them among those you caught the French collaborator Maurice Papon and the infamous regional Gestapo chief Klaus Barbie the so-called butcher of Lyon you found him in Bolivia why go to such lengths to pursue elderly frail men so many years after the war oh my god that's loaded I mean it is loaded but I think they were kind of like, you know, what is your motivation yeah. after all this time? And Serge gets quite angry. Good. And he responds, frail? They weren't frail at all. They were war criminals who had deported our parents, thousands of families. We put our energy into this because German criminals who had led the final solution of the Jewish Jewish question in France couldn't be put on trial in Germany. They couldn't be extradited to France, so they were guaranteed total impunity. We didn't pursue a criminal. We resolved a huge legal problem between France and Germany. France wanted Germany to put its criminals on trial. Germany refused to sign an agreement with France for 17 years. Willy Brandt, when he became Chancellor in small part thanks to Beata, signed the accord. Amazing. So they were very much like, this is completely justified. Like, we are not pursuing a vendetta. This Mm. is justice, basically. (laughs) Yeah. So as I've said, Beata didn't stop here. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's too much to go into here. Uh, She continued to search for other high-ranking Nazis. Uh, She actually was part of a group searching for Joseph Mengele. Okay. In truth, he had actually died a number of years prior to her search, but Mm. there were these rumours that he was still alive. Um, His body was found, I I think, in sort of 1979. Okay. Where had he gone to? Because in my mind, he went to Argentina. Uh, I think... Oh, God, I've got it up here somewhere. Yeah, he went to a number of places, including Buenos Aires, uh, trips to Paraguay as well. 
Yeah, he he went around South America a lot. Okay. Yeah, I can I can imagine there were lots of rumors going on with Mengele because yeah. like he was such a sort of long-standing and prominent figure. Yeah. He was sort of the chief of the human experimentations done by the Nazis. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty important that you want to have justice against this man. Mm. Um so when his he was exhumed, they found the body there were still many rumors and it's like it's, it's quite interesting there were this, these sort of like coded messages okay. that created this idea that you know he was still alive in 1992 they did dna analysis and found that this was the body of joseph mengele so he had died at this point yeah but, but you, know, you want to be sure exactly especially if everyone's going around just calling themselves altman yeah <laughs> Hey, I, I, I'm, I'm just a little I, I, old man. I, 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 I just happen to live in Bolivia and only speak in Spanish, despite the fact I'm clearly a German because yeah. my name is Klaus. Klaus Altman. I'm I don't just, speak German. I'm just so frail. And then Serge just launches in. is like, frail, I'll show you frail. And beats him up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Serge gets um, Beata to beat him <laughs> yes, up. Yes, <laughs> to just slap him. <laughs> So in more recent years, obviously, uh, Beata and Serge, they're, they're getting up there. They mm-hmm. are um, 82 and 85, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both still alive, as I said. Oh my but- God, that seems so young. Like, just, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking my grandma's like 93. <laughs> <laughs> they're also still pretty politically active. Uh, in 2012, Beata ran for political roles in various left-leaning parties, particularly those fighting against fascism and for those on behalf of Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was asked in another separate interview if she had any regrets in her life. And she said her only regret was that she did not manage to get justice against Alois Brunner, who was an aide to Adolf Eichmann, who was sentenced to life imprisonment in absentia, which we know is not enough for Beata. (laughs) That is so cool. Imagine that being your only regret in life. Yeah. My only regret in life is that I didn't manage to get more Nazis arrested. <laughs> That's so good. They are such cool people. And it's really fascinating to watch interviews with them. Mm. Uh, I'm going to reference again in just a sec the 2015 Euronews interview. Mm. Um, because it is fascinating. And it is like... It is one of the reasons that I really would quite like to read their autobiography. Yeah, should we put a link up to that one on our Twitter? Yeah, um, that's so a good that idea. people can follow it along. Yeah. So I've said a couple of times that Serge and Beata have this strong moral compass that revolves around the ideas of guilt and responsibility. Yeah. Because in this interview, it was around the time that Oscar Groening had, was being put on trial. Okay. He was known as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. Okay. He was basically a head accountant who was partly in charge of taking valuables from the Jewish people and organizing it and, you know, yeah. stealing it. Yeah. But they actually said that they spoke out against this trial. Okay. So they were asked, uh, do you agree with the current prosecution of 93-year-old Oskar Groening, a former Nazi guard, the so-called bookkeeper of Auschwitz? And Serge replied, no, we don't agree. Today, the concept of guilt has been broadened and is enough to have belonged to a criminal organisation of any kind carrying out duties, even as a bookkeeper or even as a cook to face charges. For me, it is too broad a concept of guilt. Okay. So I think this is very interesting because they're very definitely drawing a line between those who are in charge of manipulating people and those who have been manipulated by them. And I think that's 
really quite an important message in a way. I think definitely. I think this is one of the things I had been a little bit uncertain about Mm. um, was the fact that we know that lots of people who are in other ways innocent Mm. were doing horrendous things during the Nazi regime, Mm. which is not to say that we should consider them as completely innocent, but also they may not have seen a reasonable way out of that, or they might have just seen it as a job, because let's face it, most of us will do most things for a job. Yeah, but I think it also ties back into uh, Beata's description of her own feelings, where she says she's not guilty, Mm. but she does feel responsible. Yeah. And... I think that's important because it's, in a way, and it's going to be a weird tie-in that feels a little bit out of place, but I don't know how much you've heard recently about the National Trust and Kew Gardens. Tell me about it. So both of them have been subject of some debate, mostly on social media, for practically the same reasons, which is both of them were putting more information as to where... In Kew Gardens' case, the plants came from, Mm -hmm. and in National Trust's case, where the money to build these historic houses came from. Ah, in that case, I have heard about this. Yeah. And actually, this is exactly what I've been thinking through the whole episode. Mm. Yeah? Is, well, yes, because I think that as people who are citizens of Britain, Mm -hmm. we have always got to hold ourselves up to the same standard that we shouldn't feel guilty about the past but we should feel some responsibility because after all you and i have both directly benefited from the british empire well yeah and (laughs) we are white british people we are white british people (laughs) our country is wealthy because of the british empire and that includes the atrocities and we can't get away from that no but at the same time i also like sometimes i feel when people get really up in arms about this i'm kind of like why are you so upset about this is like does it just tarnish your image that you know the country is perfect and always has been like no we've done terrible things but you're not personally guilt like you shouldn't feel guilty about it but you should work Mm. to you know acknowledge it i think there is a tendency for people to feel that when we're acknowledging this we are telling people particularly wealthy people that they Mm. should feel guilty or feel bad whereas we're not well i'm personally not trying to tell anyone to feel bad about things like if you have in the past made money out of slave trading because your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did it, mm. then it's nothing to feel particularly guilty about. You've just got to acknowledge it. Yeah. You acknowledge that this is how you made your money and where your privilege comes from. Yeah. And it's how there's sugarcane in Kew Gardens. It's <laughs> like, it didn't grow there naturally. <laughs> I didn't know there was sugarcane in Kew Gardens. Apparently That's very is. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So for the last part of this, I'm actually going to take two paragraphs directly from uh, an article written in the Financial Times about Beata. Cool. Beata adds one other regret. The younger generation isn't as engaged as we were. Hitler built hate against the Jews. Now it's against immigrants. Serge sighs. If we had died five years ago, we would have felt all that was, uh, all that was over. Now that people live so long, we see the world change. The Klaasfelds continue to fight. On Beata's desk is a printout of an article about peace in genocide-haunted Burundi. Serge says, There is no retirement when one is politically motivated. Beata reflects on the au pair girl who arrived in Paris almost entirely ignorant of Nazism, and later delivered the slap that still echoes in German history. We have achieved a lot, she says. 
Which Damn I, right you have. Yeah, I thought it's a great way to sort of finish off here because, I mean, they're right in a way. There is a lot of stuff that's being stoked up that is eerily reminiscent of Nazism. And obviously there are people who are aware and are fighting against it, but, you know... Mm. This is why one of the reasons we do this podcast, because, you know, learning about history lets you see signs like this. So I've heard, and I realise this is a slight tangent at the end of an episode, I've heard an explanation for why there's a kind of rise of neo-Nazism in Germany currently. Oh. And this doesn't explain us, but this explains Germany. Mm. The idea is... By us, you mean Britain, not us as individuals. We are not Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) I I meant us as in Britain. (laughs) Just want to make that absolutely clear. I I would have hoped it was clear enough. I would have hoped so too, but you never know. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, Okay, so basically, West Germany went through a process of being Mm. re-educated following World War II. Um, But that didn't happen in East Germany. Um, So the Eastern Germans, having become part of the um, Soviet Union they got taught in a very different manner that basically they weren't at all to blame. It wasn't their fault. They had been brainwashed and now they were communists. Everything was okay. Um, So there's a slight idea that now, now the walls come down, there's less of that feeling of guilt and response, not guilt, but responsibility, which Beata's talking about. And that's perhaps more of a Western German viewpoint. Now I first heard about this in world war Z. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I point this out just because uh, while researching this episode, I actually found some information which is the exact contradiction of that. Really? And says that there was more there was more responsibility felt in East Germany than West. Okay. So it's one of these things I'm going to put on the back burner for a bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe it will come up if I read uh, Beata and Serge's autobiography, but we may come back on it because I think it's, it, it is interesting. It's a debate to be had for sure. Absolutely. But it's not one to be had now. No. <laughs> so I'm going to say thank you very much for listening to this episode of That Time When, the very Nazi-filled episode. But you know what? We can get behind Beata and her powerful slap. <laughs> <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at thattimewhen4 and you can suggest any possible uh, episodes for us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for our theme song Anachronist as well as any other music that Barnaby has used. And thank you to you for listening. And go slap a Nazi. Bye. (laughs) 